0: Today we are going to get into part two of a 10-part series called Religion. Hands up if you enjoyed Religion last week. Part one of the Religion series. I'm going to encourage all of you to raise your hands because in acting upon what I've just asked, you are telling yourself that you did in fact enjoy it. So let's all just practice raising our hands there. We, We got something from it. God was able to bless through the series, the the part one of the series last week, and I'm really excited about part two, but before we get into part two, we have to just go over a few points, first of all. Are we going to stick with this mic, or you want to keep going? All right. So we are going to get into part two today. It's time to get real. It's time to get what? Real. Real. Time to get real. Religion. What is religion all about? It's time to experience what religion is all about. We are going to be discovering today what it means to get real in your religious experience. So last week we started off the series with the question, why James? Why James? And we were able to see that there are several reasons why we have chosen the book of James to spend the next 10 weeks breaking down verse by verse as we are looking for a new experience with God or we are looking for new insight from God's Word. And so the first point that was made last week was that James provides a unique window. A unique window into what? early Christianity. The book of James was written around um, mid-40s AD. So, around 45 AD, the book of James was written by James, who was the brother of Jesus. And so, James, the brother of Jesus, penned this epistle... to to these people that had been dispersed throughout the land. And we see that this is just somewhat 15 years or even less than 15 years after Jesus' death. And so what we are getting here as we read the book of James, we are understanding what was taking place in early Christianity, in primitive Christianity, we are getting a window into it. Is anyone excited about that? Is anyone excited to see what it is that the early Christians were struggling with? Just a few years after Jesus' death, we are talking now 2,000 years after His death, but we are looking back to this period of just a few years after His death and receiving a unique window into what it is the early church was struggling with, what it is that was on the hearts and minds of the early church leaders. A movement driven by a practical expression of Christ's teaching is what we find when we delve into what Christianity was. As we uncover what it is this movement was driven by, it was driven by a practical expression of Christ's teaching. We see these early Christians wrestling with what Jesus was teaching them to do and how to put that into their lives. And today is going to be a very practical a very practical Bible study as we go through and understand what it was that the early church was to do with all of the information that they had received. So we see that the Douglas Moo in the New Testament commentary series, the Pillar New Testament commentary series, says that no New Testament document is more influenced by the teachings of Jesus than James. And so this is another reason why we are getting into the book of James is because it's influenced, not just heavily, but it's saturated by the teachings of Jesus. And we see that in the outworkings of James theology and in the things that he counsels these early church members to do. So we saw that the book of James, we, we broke it down into four sections, being the authorship, the audience, the theological contributions, and the organization. Now, hands up if you can tell me who the author of James is. The brother of Jesus. If you forgot that, that would be shocking. The brother of Jesus. I told you just a few moments ago. So the brother of Jesus wrote James. This has significance for us today, which we're going to look at in a second. The second thing that we looked at was the audience. Who is James writing to? It's early Christians, early Jewish converts to Christianity that have been dispersed, and we're going to see that as well. So what qualified James' epistle? Remember, this is a general epistle. James wasn't writing to a specific church or a specific group of people that met together this is a general epistle to people that were dispersed or scattered among um, the then, then world or the, the, at least their area or section of the Roman Empire. So what qualified James' epistle was his spiritual relationship with Jesus, not his physical. It would be easy to look at James, the brother of Jesus, and say that he was a prominent early church leader because he was Jesus' brother. But we see very clearly in his theology and in his pastoral approach to the people that he is writing to that the book of James, the qualification for it, is not his physical relationship to Jesus. It is his spiritual connection and we see that coming out very strongly in the language that James uses. There are several references to James in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we see a speech that James gave in Acts chapter 15. And then throughout Paul's writings, he mentions this James, the brother of Jesus. And this is really significant because we have his writing style in the book of Acts. And that's one of the main reasons why we can pinpoint that it was Jesus' brother that wrote this epistle to the, the people that were being dispersed displaced, impoverished, and persecuted. This is the group of people that we are talking about today. A group of people that have been displaced from their homes. They've been forced to move or relocate because of persecution. And because of that, they are being impoverished at the hands of wealthy landowners and other rich people that are, that are really impoverishing them or, or doing them wrong. And so we see that this is the, the um, reason for James's letter to give them encouragement in these trials that they are facing. It's time to get into it. Who's ready? We feel like we've got the background. Let's move into James chapter 1, and we're going to get right down to the end of James chapter 1 today. So James chapter 1, and we are going to begin reading in verse 12. James chapter one and verse 12. James chapter one and verse 12 says, "Blessed is the man, or blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has approved when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him." When this man who is enduring temptation has been approved, when the trial comes to an end, when the temptation comes to an end, he will receive the crown of what? The crown of life. The crown of life. Hands up if you would like to receive the crown of life today. There are several of us here who are willing to say that I would like to receive The crown of life. And James is teaching us here how we can receive this crown of life. Through enduring temptation, it is said that we will receive the crown of life. We have been talking last week very specifically about trials. And now James is going to merge his teaching on trials, or transition, sorry, into teaching on temptation... And how to deal with temptation. And so we are going to see very clearly today that trials are external. Temptations are internal. Did you get that? Trials are external, but temptations are internal. And as we move with James, as we transition from trials being these external circumstances that are taking place, we are going to transition to the internal struggles or the internal temptations that each one of us deals with. And so we are going to see very clearly that trials are external, but temptations are internal. Hands up if you endure temptation. Hands up if you face temptation. Many of us do. The Bible actually says that all of us do. And so this is very practical to each one of us today. Financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. We are talking here about this transition from trials to temptation the trial or the difficulty of being financially strapped for cash can allow temptation to come in by allowing us to question God's providence. The opportunity of a death of a loved one can provide the space or the platform for us to begin questioning whether God loves us. This is the transition between trials and temptations. He goes on to say the suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Trials provide a space or a platform for us to doubt or to question or to be tempted. Every trial brings opportunity for temptation. Every trial that we go through in life brings opportunity for temptation. And so we are going to see today that each one of us as we go through the trials of life also has to endure not just trial, but temptation. Trials are not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. Can we say praise God for that? Each one of us suffers trials. Each one of us is at the hand of the tempter, but each one of us can see that trials are not a sign, and we can add in temptations there. Temptations are not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. It is so easy to be overwhelmed. It is so easy to be overwhelmed with the wickedness that we see around us, or the things, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but this is not a sign that we have fallen out of grace with God. This is, in fact, or can be a sign that we are right where God wants us to be. The crown of life, this is coming back to James chapter 1 and verse 12 here. The crown of life is accessible to all, not just an elite few. Can we say amen to that, church? Amen that the crown of life is accessible. It says here in the book of James that the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Meaning that each one of us has access to the crown of life. We don't have to be in an elite class of people. We don't have to be born into the right family or into the right country or into the right status. We each have access to the crown of life through the trials and the temptations that we are to endure as Christians living in the year 2017. One of the things that I love here about James chapter 1 and verse 12 is that God will make it right. How many of us feel like we're hard done, time, uh, hard done by sometimes? Hands up. I know I like getting you to raise your hands and you've got sweaty armpits, so I know, I know it's a little bit awkward. Put your, hand, your finger up if you feel like you are hard done by sometimes. Any fingers up out there? A few of us. We feel like we are hard done by sometimes. The good news today, to each of us that have raised our little finger, is that God will make it right. God will make it right. Who will make it right? God will. It's not up to you to seek justice. It's not up to you to right the wrongs that are being done in your life. It's not up to you. To come through for yourself. God will make it right. And he promises to each one of us that when we endure temptation. When we endure temptation. When we endure these trials that are coming into our life. That God will make it right. It may not be today. It may not be this week. But God is going to make it right. And at the end of the day there will be a crown of life waiting for you. Praise God for the fact that He can make it right. That He has the ability to make it right. Even in the most extreme circumstances, God is going to level the playing field. God is going to make it right. And we can praise God that we can put our trust in Him today. So many of us try and do things on our own. Try, so many of us are trying to stand up for ourselves. The point is that God is going to bring justice. It may not be our present reality, but it's coming. God is going to bring justice to everyone. James 1, chapter 3, uh, verse 13 and 14. Let's continue reading here in the book of James. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. (laughs) This is a hard teaching this morning. This is a hard teaching. Did you catch why? Because we can't blame anyone else. We have to take the blame for the temptations and the trials that we are going through. That's a difficult thing for some of us to face. You see, we excuse ourselves by shifting the blame. How many of us, you can raise your little pinky for this one, how many of us try and excuse ourselves by shifting the blame onto someone else? I don't see any pinkies out there. Why not? It's because we don't like to take responsibility. It's difficult for us to take responsibility. James is saying here that, hey, when you're being tempted, don't blame God. Who should we blame? It is our own evil desires that are drawing us away, that are enticing us off. A religious experience, a real religious experience is only possible when our blame is what? Owned. Many of us have been sitting in church for our entire lives. There are people here today that have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we have never come to the point where we have experienced what religion is all about. Maybe it's because we are not able to own the blame that we place on others. Maybe it's because we are not able to see our own responsibility or the things that we should be taking responsibility for. Temptation is defined here as something that entices one to proper, improper sorry, behavior. Temptation is something that entices one to improper behavior. And we see here in verse 14, each one is tempted or enticed to improper behavior when he is what? The Bible says, drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Drawn away. This is language of hunting or fishing. And we're going to see here um, that uh, recently I was out in Lord Howe. Um, with Campbell and his family over there, and Jono, one of our church members here, we were out there doing some fishing together. And one of the greatest feelings in fishing is hooking a fish, and then being able to lean back and see your rod tip just bend over. And the further your rod tip bends, the bigger the fish that you have hooked. Has anyone here experienced the feeling? I'm not going to get you to raise your hands because you're not doing that. Raise your big toe if you've felt that before. Awesome. All the big toes went up. So, so we, we get that feeling, that great feeling of hooking a big fish. And Jono here is illustrating what I am talking about this morning, just leaning back into it and feeling that rod tip go down. Now we were going out and catching some pretty decent sized kingfish. Here's one of the, the kingfish that we were able to catch out on the island of Lord Howe. And I I came in feeling pretty good for landing this kingfish, good enough to want to get a photo with it. And I'm there and I'm asking Campbell, so this would have to be a pretty big kingfish, right? And and he's saying, yeah, yeah, that's a massive one. Um, Not really. (laughs) It, It was around five kilos, you reckon, Campbell? Yeah, around five kilos. And so I was thinking, man, they must get up to what, like six, six and a half kilos and then that night, because you go fishing during the day, and then that night everyone's sharing these fishing stories, right? And, and Clive, Campbell's dad's got his book out showing us the photos, and everyone's gathering around for these fishing stories. And so there I am, and I've got my photo of my five kilo fish, pretty happy about it. And they're showing me photos, and Campbell was telling me that the, the biggest kingfish that he's ever heard of being caught out there is 46 kilos, a bit bigger than the one I caught. The biggest one he's ever seen caught was 30-something kilos. And so I was getting a little bit deflated, like, oh, well, it doesn't happen anymore, though. That'd have to be the biggest one around at the moment or whatever else. And so there I am at the dinner table feeling like, hey, I'm going to get the big one tomorrow. I'm going to show these guys that I can land the big one. So we go out the next morning And we caught a couple of little ones. They give you a really good fight at first. And so I was really feeling like I'd hooked something good. But then it came. The big one. It took my line so ferociously that I could barely hold on to the rod. And I'm fighting just to make some ground on this thing. And the the rod tip was bending as far as I would like it to. And this is a good feeling. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to break this rod. I don't think this rod... I don't think Campbell... I think he was underestimating my ability to be able to land the big one, right? He's put too small a line on. This rod he's given me, it's going to break. I'm preparing... And I've heard of people fighting fish for three, four, five hours... And so I'm really settling in now to being able to fight this. This is one of the biggest fish I will ever see in my life. And so I'm just settling in. I'm not wasting my energy. Everything is focused on landing the biggest fish that Campbell has ever seen. And I did, but I didn't. I'll explain. So I was just enjoying getting the rod tip to touch the water when I'd like it to and (laughs) heaving back on this thing. And no matter how hard I pulled, this thing would pull harder. It was like I was fighting all fish at once. And so I'm there and I'm pulling on this thing and I would pull a little bit and I'd be able to wind my line in. And then it would pull and all of my line would go spinning out. And that's also a great sound. And so there I am. The the fish keeps running, but I'm pulling it back in. And then the fish would run again, and then I'd pull it back in, and then it'd run again, so I'd pull it back in. Until Campbell pointed out that that was just the ocean, that was the waves and the boat. <laughs> and all I was doing was fighting the bottom itself, the ocean floor. I didn't believe him, so I kept fighting. I wasn't going to give up. This could take hours, remember, so there I am fighting. Until finally, Campbell put me out on my misery by cutting the line. (laughs) Very disappointing. I'm glad I could be honest with all of you, though. Very deflating. After that, I landed a couple of small fish. No, they never felt as good. So there I was, hooking the big one, pulling it in with all of my might. And that is exactly the language that James is using here. When we are hooked, when we are enticed, when we are dragged away or drawn away by these evil desires, that is exactly the language, the metaphor, the illustration that James is using here. Just like a fish is being dragged against its will up to the boat and then finally gaffed, we are being dragged along by these evil desires. And we are going to get to the bottom of how it is that we can break this cycle. How it is that we can overcome being dragged along against our will, being hunted by evil desire. God allows trial, but He does not test us with an evil intent. This is a really important point, and I would like it to sink in for each one of us. God allows trial. Did you catch that? God allows trial... But does he do it with an evil intent? Are we able to sit here today and say, because God has allowed this, he is the the one to blame when I give in to temptation? Not at all. God allows trial, but never with an evil intent. God's intention is for us to endure, to be approved, and to ultimately receive the crown of life. The temptations in your life, Paul says in the book of Corinthians, are no different from what others experience. The New King James says that all temptation, we we all struggle with temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to men. That's what Paul says according to the New King James Version. That temptation is common for each one of us. But notice what he says next, and God is faithful. Who is faithful? God. We can't rely on our own strength. We must rely on God who alone is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than what you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Can we say praise God for that? Praise God that there is no temptation that has overtaken us except that which is common. Meaning to say that none of us are isolated in our temptation. We have the opportunity to seek help from those who have been able to endure temptation. Amen? We are part of a community and that's one of the things that I love about being a part of Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. Is that we are part of a community where we can go to those who are experienced in the faith, that we can turn to others in times of need, that we can draw together as a community. Amen? Each one of us at any given point is experiencing temptations or trials that others have been through in their life. And so we are able to come together and draw together in these times of temptation. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. With every single temptation that you face, there is always a way out. Every single time you have the hook in your mouth and you are being led against your will, there is a way out. There is always a way out. Because God is faithful. Because God will never leave us in the place of trial alone. God is right there with us. Do we get the sense that God loves us through trial today, church? Do we get the sense that even when we're faced with the greatest trials, that God is right there with us, seeking to provide a way of escape? Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Do we like that quote? It's not the frequency through which we are tempted that shows us where we are at. It's the frequency by which we can endure temptation, or at least not give in to temptation, that shows us where we are on the Christian journey. God can be turned to in times of trial, not from. The point is that God does not tempt us with evil. Therefore, we can turn to Him in times of trial. So many of us are tempted when we go through trials to turn away from God, thinking that He is the one that has caused our pain, thinking that He is the reason why we are suffering. So many of us blame God. But James is saying very clearly here that we are to blame not God. But we are to see the true cause of our temptations and the trials that we are facing. God can be turned to, not from, in times of trial. Let's continue reading here in verse 15. It says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That evil desire that is enticing us away from where we should be, or enticing us into temptation, ultimately gives birth to what? Sin. And when that gives birth, it brings forth death. We have the innate desire. But innate desire, on its own, doesn't produce sin. It says here, notice with me in verse 15, that when desire has what? What is the word that is used there by James? When desire has conceived. Can you conceive on your own? Not likely. Many of us... I don't know why I said that. None of us have tried to do that. I don't know what I'm saying there. Innate desire... forget what I just said. (laughs) Innate desire, latent desire cannot conceive or bring forth sin on its own. You following with me? You're still back there. I'm going to leave you guys there. I'm going to keep moving on. (laughs) Innate desire cannot produce sin on its own. It needs something. It needs something to conceive with. And the thing that it conceives with is your will. When latent desire or innate desire lying dormant, is coupled with our will, what does it produce? Sin. And what does sin bring forth? Death. James is teaching us here the life cycle of sin, that sin is conceived when our will is coupled with this evil desire or this natural desire that we have. Just to pick up on the definition of this word desire here, the world and its desires pass away. The world and its desires. This innate desire that is within each of us. This carnal desire that each of us feel. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. This contrast. There is the will of God versus the desires of this world. Ellen White says in this incredible passage reflecting on John chapter 5, Jesus walks into the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath and he sees all of these individuals that have been gathering there, gathering to be healed, gathering to receive a healing by touching the water. They believed it was common folklore that, that anyone that touched the water first would be healed. And so you've got all of these people that have been laying there, some of them for years, waiting to be healed, but they can't get to the water first. And Jesus finds one individual. One individual catches his attention. And this individual begins to have a conversation with Jesus. And as Jesus speaks with him, he invites him, or he first asks him, Would you like to be made whole? And the man's response is that I've got no one to help me to the water. He's in a hopeless space. He cannot do anything to save himself. He's right there where all these people around him supposedly are being healed, but he can do nothing to be healed in and of himself. Why? Because he has this infirmity. Because he cannot get to the water first. And so he is laying there hopelessly. Hopelessly lost. And Ellen White in the book Desire of Ages reflects on what happens next. When Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, the man stands up, takes up his bed, and then when he looks around for Jesus, he can be seen no more. How could it be that this man that was sick for so many years was able to walk when Jesus invited himself uh, him to? We're going to see here what Ellen White says. Through the same faith, we may receive spiritual healing. The same faith that this man displayed when he stood up, when he took the initiative upon the invitation from Christ. We may receive spiritual healing By sin we have been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. How many of us feel what I'm talking about here today? How many of us feel what Ellen White is reflecting on here? We are in this situation that our will naturally goes on the side of this latent desire. There is nothing that we can do to break this cycle and so we keep producing death. We keep producing sin that then produces death. And we see ourselves trapped in this cycle over and 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 over again. But we can do nothing to break it. We can do nothing. We have no power in and of ourselves to break it. Of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was the impotent man capable of walking. This sick individual laying on the path. We've got just as much hope of doing something right than this guy had of walking. Are we getting a glimpse of our spiritual condition today? Apart from Christ, are we catching a glimpse of what we too are experiencing There are many who realize, she goes on to say, there are many who realize their helplessness, who long for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God. They are vainly striving to obtain it. In despair they cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We are stuck. We are it. We are impotent when it comes to our ability to live a good life, to do the things that Christianity calls us to do. We have no strength in and of ourselves. We have no strength in and of ourselves. Our will continues to be on the side of this latent evil desire. James goes on to say... Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creation, of His creatures." This is an incredible passage for us to reflect on today. I'm going to read it just one more time. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Where do good gifts come from? from above, from Him. We see that this is an echo. Remember that Jesus' teachings, uh, James's book is saturated with the teachings of Jesus. We see in Luke chapter 11 verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? James, we see here, has this idea floating in the back of his mind or even in the front of his mind as he is penning the words that every good and perfect gift comes from where? Our Heavenly Father. The implications of this is that when we receive a good gift from someone here on this earth, where is it really coming from? We still have reason to praise God for every gift that we have. No matter where we see it coming from, we know as Christians that it is really coming from God. The God who loves us, the giver of perfect gifts. Something really interesting takes place here in verse 18. One of these gifts that God is giving to each one of us, He has brought us forth by the word of truth that we might become or we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is really interesting. James interjects here, where before it was your will plus latent desire equals sin, and this is this cycle, this path that we're all trapped on. Now James does something really interesting, where he says that your will can be coupled with what? The word of truth. And that the word of truth, what does it bring forth in our life? Fruit, and the fruit of which is life. So now we have an option when the implanted word is placed, or the word of truth is placed, is brought forth into our life. We have an option now. We have an option. One of the interesting things about this is that when our will is coupled with the word of truth, this imparted word of truth, something takes place of which James's audience understands because James tells them that they are the first fruits. They are a kind of first fruits of these people that are coupling their will with the word of truth. And one of the interesting things that we see is that James's audience, although they can't see it, remember that Christianity hasn't had a lot of traction. Are you following with me? In, in the world that James is writing to, Christianity has not gained a lot of traction. And so when James says that you are the first fruits of these people that are coupling their will with the word of truth, there are going to be many more that come after you. There is a bigger reality at play here. You can see what you see around you, but there is something bigger taking place. That through the imparted word that this is going to spread, and that you are just the first fruits, you are just the beginning, continue to endure because we will see a greater harvest. We will see more fruit, more life come as a result. Ellen White goes on to say in the book Desire of Ages, from where I was reading just moments ago, put your will on the side of Christ. Before our will was coupled with latent desire, put your will on the side of Christ, will to serve Him, and in acting upon His word, you will receive what? Strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. Can we say amen to that today? That cycle that we were trapped on, that place that we felt that there was no freedom, O wretched man that I am, who can free me from this body of death? Ellen White tells us through reflecting on this passage in John chapter 5 that there is freedom in Christ that when we put our will on the side of Christ that there is freedom from this cycle that we are experiencing He will impart life to the soul that is dead in trespasses. He will set free the captive that is held by weakness and misfortune and the chains of sin. Can we say amen to that church? Amen to the fact that God is able to free us from this cycle that we find ourselves on your will plus the word of truth equals life there is an option today let's keep moving in the book of james it says but i especially urge you to do this that i may be restored to you the sooner you are now the word sorry now made the god of peace who brought brought up our lord jesus christ from the dead that shepherd of the sheep through the the blood or of- okay i'm reading hebrews I was like, that is not James. (laughs) Lucky I noticed that. We would have been on a tangent then. (laughs) James chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. The things that happen when you're speaking. It's amazing. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That sounds a little bit more like James. James gives us an exhortation here. And what does he say? Let every man be swift to hear. Listen up quickly, is what James is saying. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Hands up if you've been able to master this today. I'll put my hand back down because I haven't yet mastered what James is talking about here. But James is saying that there is a natural progression when our will is coupled with the word of truth that brings life. And one of the ways that we can see that playing out is that we as Christians will be quick to listen and slow to speak. We will be quick to listen and slow to speak, but also slow to wrath. One of the interesting things about this passage is that it highlights that emotions can be controlled. What did I just say? Emotions can be controlled. Psychologists today will try and tell us that emotions cannot be controlled, that our emotions, they can be suppressed or they can be ignored, but they cannot be controlled. But James is saying here, be slow to wrath. In other words, control your anger. Uh Uh-oh, church. James is hitting the nail on the head here. Be slow to wrath. Don't just fly off the handle all the time. Why? Let's catch why he says this. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you just fly off the handle you are not able to experience the desired outcomes that you had for that situation. Who here has found in marriage that just because you can yell louder doesn't mean you win the argument? Just because you can lose your temper the quickest doesn't mean that you're going to get the desired outcome. So many of us seek peace, but we go about it in, oh, the wrong way. So many of us want to live peaceable lives, but we continue to fly off the handle. James tells us to be slow, to be slow in speech and slow in wrath, but quick to hear because it does not produce the desired outcome. By God's grace and the work of the Spirit, the person can be transformed so as to bring emotions in line with God's word and will. You reap what you sow is what we're talking about here. When you reap strife, you, uh, sorry, when you sow strife, when you sow wrath, when you in insert wrath into a situation, what are you going to reap? Exactly what you have sown. So many of us walk around in life flying off the handle at whoever we want to, doing whatever the heck we want to in any given situation, and yet we lose sight of the fact that the reason why we are always in conflict, the reason why people are always yelling back at us, the reason why these things are taking place in our life is why? It's because that's what we sow. What we sow is what we reap. And so if you today... A feeling like you're on this cycle, you're impotent, you can't get up, you have no power to do good, as much power as that man laying on the path. Maybe it's time to stop relying on your own strength and start relying on God who is faithful to free us from the situations that we find ourselves in. This is really practical now for the first century. Zealots would not be able to usher in God's kingdom with acts of violence. The zealots of James' time, James' time was a very turbulent period in Jewish history. They were trying to usher in God's kingdom, and these zealots would rise up one after the other. And ultimately, the, the Romans had to destroy, to sack the city as a result of all of these people that are, were trying to bring in God's kingdom. They were trying to do the right thing. They wanted God's kingdom to become a reality, But the things that they were doing were not going to produce the fruit that they wanted them to. The thing that they were sowing, strife and wrath, were not going to bring about the reality that they were looking for and that being God's kingdom. James is being very particular here in speaking to the issues of his day. That what you sow is what you are going to reap. And what they sowed was strife and wrath and what they reaped was death. They paid the ultimate price for not heeding James's warning here. Let's go to James chapter 1 and verse 21. It says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice this wording here, implanted word. This is something from outside of ourselves. Lay aside that which is not producing the desired outcomes. We keep on this crazy cycle. We keep doing what we are doing. And it's producing these results that we're not happy with. But we continue to do the same things. We continue to sow the same things. And therefore, we are never going to have the desired outcomes. I've got a little tip for all the launderers out there that some stains are harder to remove than others. You didn't come to church this morning expecting a tip on your laundry, but here you have it. Some stains, hands up if you can agree with this, some stains are harder to remove than others. And what we are talking about here is the stain of moral defilement, this latent desire And it is impossible to remove. We can try all of the bleachers. We can try all of these products that pop up on our TV and promise that they can uh, remove even the hardest stains. And we can go into the shower and douse ourselves with these products. But they will never remove the stain of sin, this defilement that we see inside our hearts. James says, lay aside your filthiness. He is using the words here of this filthy outer garment. Take off your dirty work clothes before you walk through the house. When you've come back from football, take off your football boots. Remove these things that are filthy, because only then will you have the desired outcome, and that is cleanness or cleanliness. The implanted word is able to save our souls. Notice the action that is required from us, receiving. How hard is it to receive a gift? Hands up if you think that it's difficult. A few of us don't like receiving gifts, do we? And we certainly don't like receiving compliments. Someone compliments us and we always turn it into a negative. Are you guys anything like me? Oh, nice hair. Yeah, I should have done it up more. No one's ever said Actually, one person did say that to me. They said I had nice hair. It's difficult to receive, or is it? When we're there laying on the ground, impotent as this man was in John chapter 5, he had tried everything. He had tried to get up and walk. He had tried to pick up his bed. He had tried to get to the water first, but he couldn't. Jesus comes along and he is able to receive that which he was hoping for. Humility was not a virtue to be desired. Among the Greek philosophers, this is never something that is brought up. The Bible says that we are to receive with meekness or humility. This is never something that people were talking about. You have to be humble. But James comes in and says that when we are humble, when we receive with humility, that we get the desired outcomes that we are hoping for. Back to our topic of religion. Religion isn't a matter of harnessing something already within. This is one of the major points of the message this morning. And that is that you don't have the answer to the problems inside yourself. Did you catch that? You don't have the answer to the problems. You don't have the ability to endure. You don't have the ability to say no to temptation in and of yourself. But God is able to impart it to us. God is able to do that which we cannot do. Christianity is not just promising that there is something deep inside you and all you've got to do is learn to channel it or harness it. No, 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 no. The answer comes from without, not from within. And praise God for that. Religion provides the solution to our depravity. Can we say amen for that? So many of us have come to -to face-to-face with Christ and realized how dirty we are. And we are left in that state, feeling ashamed, feeling naked, feeling disgusting. We don't know how to get what Christ is offering us. Christianity not only points out our depravity, it also promises a solution. I'm going to go to the last two verses of James. And I'm going to invite Anna and Katie up here while I do this. Anna and Katie, if you guys don't mind coming up. And this is where we are going to land the plane for today. Have you gotten something out of the message so far? There are so many practical points in here for us to continue to take apart. Anna and Katie, welcome up. It says here in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious, this is getting down to the crux now of what religion is all about. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless, James says. Did you hear that? The person that cannot bridle his own tongue, his religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'm really excited because we are a part of a church here in Kingscliff that values the needs of our community. We are part of a church congregation that puts our energy into reaching those that do not have an understanding of who God is. And that is exactly what James is saying here, that pure and undefiled religion is not being inward-focused but outward-focused. And so I'm just going to interview Anna and Katie really quickly about an experience that that you've had recently with a, a somewhat new ministry at church. Anna, do you want to tell us what is flowers for you?
1: Well... Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we went to John Flynn Hospital. We met Mm. outside on the lawn a bunch of ladies and... Was there guys there? I don't Yeah, guys there. Um, And some of the ladies had previously arranged a few bunches of flowers and we prayed together and um, hoped that we would have an opportunity to share what we believe with people that were in the hospital that were sick or just having to be there, yeah.
0: Yep, so you get together a bunch of the flowers and you take them into hospital. It sounds pretty simple, yeah? Yeah. Yep, somewhat. And can you tell us about, was there anything that happened during your time in the hospital that was noteworthy that would warrant me calling you up the front of church? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, we um, had three bunches of flowers. Okay. And I, we hopped in the elevator and people were like, wow, you've got a lot of flowers there. And we were like, talk to them about what we were going to do. And there was one gentleman who didn't have any flowers and we gave him a bunch to give to somebody. And he was really grateful. Mm. Um, And then we went up to another level. Katie really wanted to check out the maternity ward. So that's where we (laughs) headed. Um, And we met somebody there that really needed a visit.
0: Wow. And and do you want to tell us, um, yeah, how that came about?
1: Sure. Um, So
2: obviously I wanted to go to the maternity ward. I was, at that point, 20 weeks pregnant. And um, we just asked the lady, uh, the nurse um, on the ward, we just asked her if she would lead us uh, or point out uh, somebody that might really um, need the flowers. And um, after we recap, just moving forward a bit, when all of us as a group came back together, our, our immediate response was how grateful the staff within the hospital were. Um, so excited that somebody was taking initiative. So we received that same excitement from the mm-hmm. staff. Wow, you're here. You know, We'll direct you to people. We definitely have people in need. And so um, one of the, the patients, I guess, or, or the mothers um, that we visited... She had been in the hospital for quite some time. She was 25 weeks pregnant with twins, and due to some complications, she's not allowed to leave the hospital until she actually gives birth. So that means that all day, she's bedridden. And um, at that point, we just ended up having about a 15, 20-minute conversation, Mm. just about Pregnancy and and uh, things of such a nature, and then she's like, "Well, who are you, anyways?" And um, we're just like, "Well, we're just from the kingslip Seventh Day Adventist Church, and, and we'd really like to just give you these flowers to bring you a bit of cheer." And just saying that we were with the of Seventh Day Adventist Church immediately gave us a bit of a segue to mm-hmm. then um, talk about spiritual things and. Um, it was actually not something that we had planned. Um, I think uh, just coming in the situation, I just thought, well, it might be so random that we might just drop off the flowers and then leave immediately. But she was so interested. She's like, well, normally I'm not a very spiritual person. And we ended up having a bit of a chat. And at the end, I just said, hey, do you mind if if we pray with you before you leave? And... um, she said, absolutely. I, I don't actually pray myself, but I'd be open to us receiving a prayer. And um, just when we reconvened with our whole group, it was just amazing to see how many people had similar experiences. You know, how can you turn down Mel Burrett's cute little girl running into a room, Layla, with a bright bunch of flowers? And, you know, we have flowers for you. And just bringing so much cheer to so many people in the hospital, Um, I think all of us were just on a real little Mm -hmm. buzz of doing something so small, carving out two hours of our Sunday, being intentional about those two hours, and then receiving positive feedback. And um, speaking to Tammy as well, she said that there's some people that actually, because we left cards that said, you know, something to brighten your day from your friends at the Kingscliff, something of this church There are two people that actually took the initiative to call our church and just thank us. Mm. Um, And we prayed at the beginning. We just asked, hey, can you lead and direct our steps? And it was amazing that we actually even met some ex-members of this church in the hospital. And they're just like, wow, we used to attend Kingscliff something on this church. So, yeah, it was a blessing.
0: Mm, That's so great. And and tell us, how can we get involved in this?
2: So, it's actually... um, Melbourne has come up with this idea, and it's brilliant. And, and every Sunday, the first Sunday of every month, sorry, not every Monday, but every, the first Sunday of every month, um, which is next Sunday, so in, in about seven days, um, we'll be going back to the hospital. And the way that you can get involved is either contributing your finances, so uh, uh, depositing some money in Melbourne's bank account, if you can't make it or just showing up on the day, 10 o'clock, we just meet right outside of John Flynn's um, hospital. There's a big um, grass area park. You cannot miss it. And we just congregate there, get the flowers, and then divide up into various wards. So, mm. yeah, come along. It's it's easy. It's non-threatening. and. I guarantee you'll, you'll receive a blessing.
0: Mm. Right, thank you so much. Let's give them a round of applause. Real <laughs> religion, James says, is having an outward focus, not an inward focus. Real religion is about looking for opportunities to be a blessing to those around you. Real religion, the real stuff. The stuff that we're all after but never seem to quite know how to get it. It's at our fingertips. And James gives us the key here in James chapter 1 and verse 22. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So many of us have deceived ourselves into thinking that we've had an experience with Christ... When it hasn't really made the transformation that God promises. So many of us have, co- have been to church for years on end. And we still are grasping for this real experience. The title of the message today is, It's Time to Get Real. It's time to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Are you with me, church? It is time in your religious experience to get real. So many of us have been spending an hour a day in the Word. And so many of us have felt like it really hasn't had an impact. Sure, it's had an impact on some. But many of us have tried it before and felt like nothing changed. The key to real religion or real religion is not only being hearers of the Word, but putting it into practice. Friends, I need to admit, I need to confess to you this morning, that I haven't always been faithful. I need to admit that I have read things in the Bible, and it has taken me years to put it into practice. I admit that it has taken me, as a pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, time... To be able to put these principles into practice. And am I standing up here today as someone that has perfected this? Many of you would say yes, but I would have to say no. I would have to say no if I'm honest with you. And so I want to take the challenge that James is laying down here. I want to take the challenge to be real with my experience. And the first challenge in being real with your religious experience is being honest with where you are on the journey. Are you following with me? Be doers of the word, not deceiving yourselves. The deception that is taking place is that we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are somewhere that we aren't. And so the first step in the challenge that James is laying down to us today is to be honest with where you are. In your religious experience, be honest with the fact that you don't have it all together. Be honest with the fact that there is room to grow and bring that to God. Father, thank you that I can turn to you in times of trial. Thank you that you are someone that I can go to, not from. Father, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I've got questions. I've got doubts. I've got all of these things racing through my mind. Father, I come to you asking that you would give me peace. I want to put into practice what we are talking about here today in the book of James. The first challenge, challenge number one, is to be real with where you are with God. Challenge number two, spend time in the Word. Your will, coupled with the Word, brings about the fruit that we are are desiring. It brings about these desirable outcomes in our life. Put our will on the side of Christ and we will experience, it is promised, what we are after. The truth is that we get what we sow. We reap what we sow. And so when we sow the word, when we sow those seeds into our lives and into our heart, that imparted word, it is going to bring fruit into our lives. So the challenge... Be honest with where you are. Spend time in the Word. third step, look for opportunities to put it into practice. Whether that's as simple as going with a group of um, people to the hospital and giving out flowers, or whether that's looking for opportunities to be a blessing to someone here at church, or whether that's going to your neighbor and asking them how they're going. Whatever it is, look for an opportunity to put what you're reading into practice. Be slow to speak but swift to hear. Slow to wrath, but quick to hear. If that isn't challenge enough for you, church, I don't know what is. Today we have the challenge to get real with religion. It's time to get real. We don't want to keep going how we're going. We don't want to just track along. We want to continue to grow and to be deeply rooted in the Word of Christ. In order to do this, we have to be honest with where we are. We have to give God space in our lives. Thank you so much, ladies, for sharing your testimony with us about how God has been able to show you what real religion is all about. There's so many other things happening in our congregation, so many other people that I could have brought up here today. And I want to praise God for the way that we see Him working in our congregation. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we are here today simply asking that we would have a real experience with you. So many of us have been missing out. So many of us have felt jaded. So many of us have felt like we don't have that experience that you talk about in Scripture. And so I want to come to you today, Father, and ask that in my own heart, that I would be honest with where I'm at with you today, that I am not where I could be or where I should be. And for that reason, I am sorry. But Father, I want to thank you for the counsel that we have received in James today, that we can have this word imparted into our lives, implanted in our lives so that we can be deeply rooted in you. Father, I'm asking for each one of us gathered here today, that you would lead us and guide us in our lives. That you would lead and guide the decisions that we were making, we are making. And that you would help us to have a real experience with you. Father, we see that it's time to get real. And so we ask that you would give us this experience that we seek today. May our will be coupled with Christ, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.